0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to parents of children struggling with the effects of trauma and attachment disorders, and the caseworkers, coordinators, and other professionals who support them. Your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Katherine Tucker, who will discuss her work with research. Dr. Tucker is Research Director of the Therapy Institute, maintains a private practice, and as a play and expressive therapist, supervisor, and trainer. And now, your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well,
1: good morning, everybody. Good morning for us here right now. I'm not sure what time it'll be when people listen to this, but I have with me today Dr. Katherine Tucker, who is the research director for the TheraPlay Institute. Uh, She uh, also maintains a private practice and does some consulting and training and other things and our topic today is going to be research so Dr. Tucker I am like so excited to have you here with me today and I'd like you to introduce yourself also and share a little bit more about your background.
2: Sure, well I'm delighted to be here and that you're doing this. Um, I know I have several colleagues and former students who love listening to your podcast and um, finding out more things they can do to help families that are dealing with attachment problems. Um, I think it's still the the great secret in therapy circles that um, too often doesn't get taught in graduate school. But um, I'm Catherine Tucker. My current position is research director at the Therapy Institute. Um, which means I get to help develop new research projects and um, continue on doing other types of research, uh, seeking funding, etc., to ensure that fair um, play is continuing to be refined and that we're collecting evidence on what it does best and um, how it can help families.
1: Great. Wonderful. Thank you.
2: And then I have um, a tiny private practice here in Terre Haute to um, keep my skills short. Um, and I also do a lot of training and teaching and this and that.
1: Yes. And you, you previously taught at um, Indiana State University,
2: correct? That's right. I was a professor for eight years. with um, Taught in the counseling program, the clinical mental health and the school counseling programs. Um, I taught all across the curriculum. All the, all the classes you probably had to take in grad school. Um, and that was lots of fun until it wasn't. And so now um, I'm doing research for therapy, okay. which is always
1: fun. Good, good. Well, um, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have this podcast and hear from you because of your experience in research is it seems like, as I talk with other therapists across the country, that... They're being told by funders or insurance companies or their agency, you can only do this particular evidence-based practice. Um, And sometimes um, that's trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes it's something else. And I feel like I have a real problem with that, (laughs) that people who have no idea who we're working with or haven't met the child or anything are just saying this is what the child needs this is all we'll support you doing now go do it um, so so I, I have that problem and then the other concern I have is that what I have experienced is the the model with the most research is not necessarily the most effective so What are some, just in general, what are some of your thoughts just about those two points, being kind of uh, railroaded into a model, being told this is what you have to do, and this idea that people seem to have, if it has lots of research, then that's the best thing. That's what you have to use.
2: Yeah, and it's a really interesting time for us to be having this conversation. Um, In the time between when we scheduled this talk and today, The big news development is that our federal government has eliminated the National Registry of Evidence-Based Practices and Programs, which um, is under SAMHSA and for I don't know, almost a decade I guess, has been the clearinghouse for research um, on all sorts of different ways of working with people in the mental health and addictions world. Um, That disappeared overnight, literally, and we're sort of in a very Fuzzy gray time right now, as researchers in the mental health world, um, we don't even know who's going to be the gatekeeper or how that's going to be done. Um, and the reason that's a big problem is that NREF, although it had its issues, which is a whole nother podcast, um, was an impartial, nonpartisan, non um, financially based system. Um, It was peer reviewed. They had people from all over the mental health field. Um, I was a reviewer for them for a while, reviewing studies to see which ones were worth putting on the list and which ones weren't. And there was this whole very elaborate formal process that interventions had to go through in order to be placed on the list of options for practitioners to use that could be considered evidence-based. I was the person in charge of leading fair play through that process last, well, 2016, so I guess two years ago, Um, and that required huge amounts of work from the entire staff to get us on the list. Um, And the reason it was so important for that list to exist in the way that it did was that it helped protect consumers from clinicians who were trained in things like conversion therapy that are actually harmful. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where evidence-based practice is important is in that protection of consumers. Right. So backing into your first question about um, people being railroaded into doing um, evidence-based practice, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, And that's where politics happen. Um, But where NREP was important in mediating that problem was that any developer of any intervention could apply to be on NREP. And so, and what does
1: NRep stand for? I know it's it's part of SAMHSA. Is that it was? It was, <laughs> and so that stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And also, they were also funders, just particularly related to this podcast. And. Um, trauma and attachment. Um, they funded the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. So right. yes, and so this group that you're describing is a part of SAMHSA. And what are that? And what does that stand for?
2: It stood for the National Register of Evidence-Based Practices and Programs. Okay. Um, and it was run by an outside contractor. Okay. Um, and the contractors. Then went out and found reviewers all over the mental health field. It was mostly professors from different universities all over the country. Um, we were paid a tiny little stipend to review studies and look at how they were put together and how many people were in the study and what measures were used and determine whether or not um, the studies were good enough to earn the uh, interventions a spot on that list.
1: Okay. Um, and then you and, said that. And- you mentioned politics, and you also mentioned the, the the original idea of this is to protect consumers, but it seems to in some ways have gone awry. Of course. Um, <laughs> as with anything that's well-intentioned,
2: there are side effects that nobody looked for in the first place. Um, and so the idea behind Interrupt was to create a place where um, studies could be looked at by an impartial, nonpartisan non-political, non-money related group of people and determine which things were actually effective and which things were not. Um, And then if you got on that list, that meant that um, clinicians and administrators would pay for training in that thing, whatever it was, the intervention, um, and would allow clinicians to do the thing. Um, And then for therapy in particular, it made a big difference when we got on that list because uh, clinicians who wanted to be trained in play could go to their bosses and say, hey, I wanna go to play level one, it's on the NREP. It's an evidence-based practice, so the administrator really couldn't argue about it and say, oh, you can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was the evidence-based practice. So um, in a lot of ways, NREP took the politics out of that um, because it was an impartial reviewing body. And if you had enough studies, you could get on the list. So where politics happens, and and where things like TFCBT get really um, important in the dialogue, is that studies are hard to do um, if you're not at a university, or you don't have a big big federal grant, um, and you can't pay for training and supervision in a particular intervention. They're expensive and they're time consuming and then somebody has to do the math. Um, Most clinicians are not interested (laughs) in doing that or aren't trained to do it. So if you have a great idea for this um, amazing intervention that's wonderful for kids with depression or whatever it is, um, in order to have that become an evidence-to-face practice, you have to figure out a way to do multiple studies to get on a list.
1: So even though the review committee you were talking about was impartial, you have to have enough funding to do studies that it could ever make it to that review committee.
2: Right. That right. can be
1: a barrier in some cases.
2: Sure, and so if we look at interventions like um, trauma-focused CBT, or we look at um, parent-child interaction therapy, PCIT, those are great examples of how interventions that are not perhaps best for children with attachment or trauma problems, and we can go into why in a minute, um, become very highly ranked and very popular. Um, PCIT in particular, which I'm more familiar with, came out of a university lab. It was created by... um, professors in psychology who were not clinicians um, loosely based on maybe some attachment theory and a lot of behavior theory as something that should work based on theory. And then because they had at their disposal lots of doctoral students and lots of money and lots of lab time and funding, they were able to push out a huge number of studies. that showed that PCIT was more effective than being on a waiting list, for example. None of their studies that I'm aware of um, looked at PCIT versus child-centered play therapy or versus um, CBT or versus TheraPlay or any other intervention. They were just always versus wait list controls, which meant people who weren't getting any therapy. Um, And so it was shown to be more effective than nothing and because they had this lab um, and they had lots of funding and they had some big names involved they were able to push out lots and lots of studies but when you sit and look at the nuts and bolts of how it's put together it's actually an extremely manipulative therapy um, but in my personal clinician opinion my professional opinion is damaging to kids with attachment disorders um, is it undermines that fundamental basic attunement and attachment between parent and child by being manipulative and by doing a lot of time out, which is also damaging. Um, We've got this problem now of this very popular theory that's become a therapy that has a lot of okay research behind it um, that shows it's effective, but only shows it's more effective than doing nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are being told to go get trained in it when I think over time the story that's going to come out is that it's actually detrimental. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Much like in the autism world right now, we're hearing um, for the first time from adults who went through ABA therapy, um, which is something behavioral analysis, applied, of, behavioral for, analysis yeah, yeah. But, uh, applied behavioral analysis Yeah, Applied behavioral analysis Which we're now hearing from some adults with autism who went through that as kids that it feels to them at the time to be abusive Right? There's a big backlash from adults with autism now with that particular mm-hmm. way of doing stuff mm-hmm. and as clinicians we're going to have to take that into account and change some of what we're doing mm-hmm. I think the same thing eventually will happen with PCIT and mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, it's got this great research base.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes.
2: TFCBT is similar in that um, it also got a lot of attention and a lot of funding, had some big names behind it initially, um, folks who were able to get funding. But again, most of their research is looking at versus either nothing or um, people who were assigned to, um, you know, groups that read a book or saw a movie or something, instead of getting therapy, um, it wasn't versus a different kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. It was just a wait list.
1: Yes, and I think that that also brings up another part of the question, is something (laughs) evidence-based, but people forget to ask, evidence-based for what? Exactly, um, And I. it's also my understanding that a lot of the research for TFCBT was on single-episode trauma, not yes. the kind of trauma that we're dealing with many times that accompanies children that have attachment difficulties. We're talking right. relational trauma, complex trauma, developmental trauma. Um, it's a very different thing than someone that was in a car accident and has PTSD symptoms as a result. Right, and I think, you know, as a clinician,
2: putting that hat on, um, TFCBT is probably fine for an adult client who is cognitively intact and has a fairly low ACEs score um, and was in an accident or I had something bad happen um, and they come in wanting to return to their functioning as it was 18 months ago or something. But when you're working with kids who've got early developmental trauma, preverbal trauma, repeated episodes of trauma, high ACEs scores, um, especially if they also have low cognitive function, um, multi-stress families, they don't have the bandwidth to do TF-CBT. In order to do any kind of CBT um, and have it be effective, the client has to be able to take what you talk about in session with faulty thinking and um, changing how they think about things, and then apply it to real life. Mm-hmm. And the kids that we see who have um, <laughs> complex trauma and attachment problems, there's no possible way they're going to do that. Um, the insults to them developmentally are deeper in the brain and have to do with regulation and um, relationship. Um, and in fact, I was originally attracted to their play as a very young, very naive thing. Um when I was working with a lot of foster kids and noticed that um, all the stuff I've been taught in graduate school, which is all CBT, um, it didn't even make a ripple on the surface because they, they couldn't they couldn't form a relationship with me.
1: All right. And, and so one of the things that you were starting to say, Dr. Tucker, is... For any model to work, research, new research, or whatever, the client or the, or the child or whoever needs to be able to form a relationship.
2: Right. And um, if you work with children who have a lot of early developmental trauma and um, relationship um, ruptures, attachment ruptures, Typically, they really struggle to form an appropriate relationship with anybody. Um, and so that has to be addressed first as do problems with the regulation. Um, if you really want to get me on my soapbox, we can talk about ADHD, but that's probably another podcast. Um, kids who, get, who come in for quote-unquote ADHD and you look a little closer and you discover all this early trauma, uh, ACE scores, history in foster care, et cetera, and so on. Those kids are never going to be appropriate to start out with, with anything cognitive period, Mm -hmm. no matter how great they are, because the insults were done developmentally at a point. that insulted the limbic system and the brainstem and not the cortex. Right. Um, And we know now about trauma that when you're faced with any kind of trauma at any age, the first thing to go offline is, your abstract thinking and your language. Yes. And when you get, well, first of all, when you're a baby or a toddler, young child, the cortex is not well developed. It's not really wired in yet. And if those insults happen at that point and need to be processed and digested. Um, doing anything cognitive is never going to help that. And mm-hmm. um, You know, something Bessel Kolk talks about all the time is that you have to get into the body. Right. Uh, you have to do sensory motor things if the insult happened during sensory motor periods of development. Right. Um, which is where things like therapy, play um, or sensory motor psychotherapy, Pat Ogden's work is so helpful, um, is because it gets at the right level of the brain. The difficulty with all of that is that it we're fighting an uphill battle even with all the amazing work of people like Alan Shore and Dan Siegel and Stephen Porges um, from the labs looking at you know MRIs of people with trauma and showing actual physical brain differences, and saying over and over and over, you can't do CBT when the cortex is offline is not going to work. Um, because there's so many bazillions and bazillions of studies looking at CBT versus weightless control, um, showing that it's better than nothing. You have to, to really look at that research carefully um, and really have a conversation with administrators to educate them sometimes about the brain processes and why something like TFCBT is not going to work with a five year old uh-huh. who's had chronic trauma since they were a fetus. You know, it's, it's just never going to work for them. Um but because like I said, the funding has been there for so many years for um studies to be done looking at TFCBT versus nothing and showing that it's better than nothing, um, it still looks really good to an administrator who's not familiar with complex trauma in young children.
1: Yes, and you know, you you mentioned van der Vanderkolk and um, I'm sure many people listening to this podcast have heard of him and are, think he's amazing. However, he's taken major hits from the scientific community. Yes. I think it's getting maybe better, but, I mean, 5, 8, 10 years ago, I was reading these scathing, negative articles. Basically, he's you know gone off the deep end. He's no longer a scientist. And yes. now, come to find... Um, like you said, with a lot of the research on the brain, understanding um, how language goes offline, and really at any age, language can go offline during a traumatic incident. You know, so I think sometimes, you know, I used to say to groups, you know, because this happened when the children were younger and language wasn't online, and, um, and then I eventually learned, you know, that that's not necessarily true because the brain can go into that state you know, we have the phrases too scared to scream or that people describe a traumatic incident just as a sensory experience and not a narrative what they smelled what they heard and, you know, so so we think what Bessel van der Kolk Dr. van der Kolk is saying we're like all behind it but you nodded your head when I said he took And probably continues to take a lot of flack from the scientific community. Yeah,
2: totally. He's the standard bearer. And um, because he's a white male psychiatrist in Boston, um, who has lots of publications and a good job and tenure, he can do that. I think it's probably been a great personal cost to him in terms of his stress level. But, you know, anytime somebody's a trailblazer, they tend to take the flack from the the, uh, more entrenched community um the more conservative groups because change is is hard for all of us that's why a lot of folks come to see all of us right Just because they're making changes that are uncomfortable um but it is an important shift and i think uh, dr Van and dr porges and all those other interestingly white nail scientists that we're talking about today um are really pathfinding for for the rest of us in an interesting way. Um, but, you know, we're talking about that, and I keep thinking about Phyllis Booth, who was the one of the founders of Theraplay, who has been saying this for 50 years now. Um, and because she's not an MD, and because she uh, didn't have scans to prove what she was saying about um, kids with complex trauma needing a nonverbal treatment format, um, and that we need to treat Kids with um, who can't regulate by themselves, we need to help them co-regulate first, and then self-regulate. My Phyllis have been saying this forever, um, but because she's a therapist and not an MD, she got poo all the time. You know, it mm-hmm. took a long time for even the play therapy community yeah. to catch on yes. and say, "You know what? She's right." Yes. And now, finally, medical research is catching up. To Phyllis and other pioneers in the field. Um, But it wasn't until we could show an MRI of a normal brain versus a a little kid with complex trauma and see the limbic system swollen that, you know, we really started making progress with this.
1: Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So, and, and that's one way that research has been helpful, but it also points out that even with research, which is supposed to be. Quote unquote objective, which it never is, but that's a whole nother podcast. Um, it, it's still difficult to get people to shift their thinking.
1: Uh-huh.
2: You know, I spend a lot of time with parents helping them advocate for their kids who have trauma um, and need different accommodations in the classroom to have the teacher just simply shift from a, a mindset of, oh, he's being naughty to oh he's in pain or oh you know something bad happened to this kid and he's reacting out of that mm-hmm. even that simple of a shift can be really hard even with all this research we've got now
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes i know we can't go deep into the statement you made that just now about not all, basically not all research is really valid, Um, but I heard this phrase once that always stuck with me. Um, It was in looking at some research with somebody, um, and they said, you know, you can always, if you really want to prove something, you can just torture the data until it confesses.
2: Yeah, yeah, or um, lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? Uh-huh. So, if you're good enough with math, you can manipulate the numbers do whatever you want to. Um, which is why that research course that everybody hates in their master's program is actually so important, um, because as consumers of research, it's absolutely the responsibility of the clinician to look at the research and make a determination about whether or not it's valid. Um, if they if the research was done on three people, and they were all white middle class, you know, grocery store clerks or something, it probably is not going to apply to your Hispanic client, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's part of why NROPE was so important. Getting yes. back to that, yes. Because that was a group of professor types who um, were nerdy enough to think that this is interesting and fun and we do it in their spare time for very little money to look at the studies and fill in this very complex spreadsheet about which boxes they could tick off as far as how well the research was designed, how many people were in it, how well were the measures they used valid, and all that sort of stuff that clinicians do not have time to mess with. Yes. And so now we're back in a position in a world without NREB that it's going to fall back on the frontline clinicians who do not have time to look at the research closely Mm -hmm. and make a determination about whether or not this is something appropriate for their clients or not. And it's also going to fall on the clients to determine whether what their therapist is doing is good or not. Right. And who has left for that? Nobody.
1: Now, there is the other place that people tend to look about this topic, um, the California Clearinghouse, which yes. I know that that's um, a more specific, like a, a narrower, um, I think it's, it's more about child therapy, is it? Yes. yes. Yeah. So, uh, is that a good place for people to, to, to look for evidence-based practices?
2: Yeah, in a way, um, we're left with California. Washington State also has one. The issue there, um, and I can say this as research director for therapy, is that those of us who were research directors um, for interventions kind of have paid less attention to those clearinghouses since NRUP existed because the idea was that once there was a federal register, we didn't need every state to have one anymore. Right. And so, like, I haven't updated our california stuff much um i'm doing it now by golly but um i don't know how up to date those registries are because most people have spent more attention at the federal level because we had it um and i don't know what the staffing of california clearinghouse is but i think they're probably about to get overwhelmed with a barrage um there was an article in the washington post yesterday or today um today being January 11th, 2018, um, about the NREP disappearance. Um, And in that article, they said that there were 90 interventions for addiction and mental health treatment that were never reviewed, that had been sent in as applications. Um, And so they're just in limbo, those 90. Um, And NREP looked at addictions and mental health treatments from zero through old age for everybody. And California and Washington are both, I believe, for children only. Yes. Um, so, probably people listening to this podcast, yes, they can go to California Clearinghouse. And then also, if it's a school based intervention, there's the What Works Clearinghouse, which is through the Department of Education. And as of yesterday, it was still there because now I'm checking every day with the federal government to see if stuff is still there. Mm-hmm. So, and it has things for classroom intervention. Yes, teachers and special ed, etc.
1: So we have to get to before we end our discussion. What is a therapist to do? We're we're here saying you know, even if it has a lot of research um, and an evidence base, it may not be evidence based for the kind of problems your child has. Um, and then we're saying well even if it has a lot of research some of that you could have made the numbers say what you want Um, we're saying there could be a fabulous model out there that just didn't have access to millions of dollars to demonstrate with randomized clinical trials etc that it works but by golly it may work better than one of those what, what should I, like, let's have some takeaway points as a clinician out there. How could they most effectively navigate this?
2: It's, uh, honestly, it's a mess. Um, and I think there's a few things that clinicians can do. One being, you have to be a critical consumer of training and information. And when you go to a training, you need to look at the references Page that they give you at the end of the PowerPoint, and see if this person is just pulling stuff out of their ear, or if there's anything backing it up. Mm-hmm. And if it sounds wrong, go pull up some of their researchers and see what they're basing it on. Mm-hmm. Did they have um, a research study with three people in it, or were there 500 people in it? Um, and if it's if you get confused and you're not sure. Reach out to somebody who's more savvy with research than you are. as um, you. Yes. Don't everybody email me today. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you had, for example, a professor in graduate school whom you, whose opinion you trust, um, or you have had a supervisor or a trainer or somebody um, who you feel like is highly knowledgeable in the field, um, this is also part of a job, and I'll say this as, as with my Association for Child and Adolescent Counseling hat on, um, this is also a job for the professional organizations to take on. Um, I know um, I'm president of ACAC, which is a division of the American Counseling Association, and um, our board meeting in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk a lot about this. How do we help our members sort through everything without NREP being there? You know, because with NREP, you could just go to that website and say, I need something for kids with autism, and you could find 10 things that do were you, on the list.
1: Do you think it's not coming back?
2: No, I don't think it's coming back. <sighs> it's not coming back. Um, my hope, my, my little flickering hope, flame of hope, died when I read the quote um, from the guy who's now in charge of Policy Lab, whose um, name I believe is Christopher Jones. Christopher Smith, something, I don't know. It's in the Washington Post article, Um, where he said a statement that was highly political and not true.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was like, all right, well, he's clearly a political appointment. He's going to toe the line of the party, and it's not in the best interest of consumers. hmm
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, so do your homework as a clinician, as a consumer, Absolutely. look at these research studies, understand at least some of the basics of research, um, that even at what you have shared here today was the trial, you get this or you get nothing. That's a lot different than some, 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 some other ways a study could be set up, you know. So <clears throat> I even think a lot of the information that you gave us today is, is really helpful in terms of looking at those things. Um, people can still look at California Clearinghouse and, and the other places that you mentioned and yes. I I just really very much appreciate your time today and your expertise in this topic. There aren't a lot of folks out there that, un- that are well versed in research um, and practice clinically. So you know you're rare um, as someone who straddles, well, as as someone who straddles both those worlds, and so you have a really unique and valuable perspective um, to share. So I really, really appreciate you being here today. Thank you.
2: Well, I appreciate being invited. I think it's a, a wonderful series that you're doing.
1: Yes, and if people, do you, um, if anybody would want to contact you, if they have ideas for research related to TheraPlay, obviously, or, I mean, is there, like you said, I don't want you inundated with calls and emails, but it, is there a place you'd like to direct people if they wanted to consult with you on a research project or something like that?
2: Sure, and I'm, um, I'm on the Facebook page that you operate Okay. Um, with, for attachment-based Therapist, and then I'm Catherine with a C at TheraPlay.org. And you can find me just through the TheraPlay website.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so, so much and goodbye for today.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe to our iTunes channel for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.